1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to read the first 15 verses. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe, was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer of the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off all the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to help the horses and mules to keep them alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover. Ahab going to one, in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? asked Obadiah. That you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And wherever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and I supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together, we ask you just to open up our hearts to hear from you this morning, to hear what you have to say through these stories from the Old Testament, the truth that is found in the Bible. We ask you just to bless us and help us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, don't you hate when you lose your notes? So just apologize for a second. Like. Well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you remember being asked that question as a child? Or have you asked one of your children or a niece or nephew that question? Maybe some of us are being still asked that question. What do you want to do when you grow up? Well, I remember of dreaming of being a fireman 
or a train driver, which fortunately didn't happen, if any of you are familiar with my driving. However, when I did land a proper vocation, I can confidently say I was outstanding in my own field. Vocation. I want to begin by talking a little bit about vocation. The word vocation was more common in a previous generation. The word vocation has now been replaced with words like our work or perhaps the job that we do or the careers that we have. However, and I guess for most of you, the word vocation has been replaced, hasn't it, by that other language? Which I think is a shame because the idea of vocation, particularly for the followers of Jesus, is really important. The word vocation, it comes from the Latin word meaning to call. And that was the original sense of it. Not that you were given a job, but that God had called you at a particular time to a particular kind of life. In his book on work, Tim Keller, a very famous American pastor, says this. A job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them rather than for yourself. And so work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. The word vocation captures to the Christian more than just work. It speaks of providence, of purpose. It implies that the Lord has arranged your life in a certain way and called you up to do a certain work, work that both serves him and work that both serves your neighbours. Well now, what on earth has this got to do with the passage right here in front of us in the heart of the Old Testament in 1 Kings in chapter 18? Well, in this story, we've been introduced to two very different servants of God. However, they're similar because they are united by a fearful devotion to Yahweh, their love of the one true God. They are similar because they're united by faith in his word and confidence in his provision. They are similar because they're united in willing service by their unselfish obedience. Indeed, they're united in many similar ways. However, they are very different in terms of their calling, in terms of their vocation. You see, God has more than just one type of servant. He doesn't just want replicas of the same person doing the same thing in the same way. He wants hundreds of different workers in different kinds of places at all levels. We notice that in the instructions of the Great Commission that's recorded by Matthew. Jesus sets out the mission and vision of the kingdom on earth until he returns. Agents of the gospel embedded in a world preaching and teaching. In a world where the drought and wickedness seem as bad as ever, God has placed his servants, the servants of his kingdom, with a knowledge of where to find water, not water that quenches the thirst, not physical thirst, but water in which John's gospel calls living water, water that satisfies the spiritual thirst. In some parts of the world, God's servants can stand up with relative freedom, like we can do here this morning, to preach God's word in public. But I'm sure you recognize in many countries, 
in the world. God's servants must act in shadows, courageously, obediently, and faithfully working to forward God's kingdom. And here in 1 Kings, we see two of these servants, united by their faith in Yahweh and by their desire to live lives that are faithful to him. And this morning, I want to look at these two servants and think about how God called them to to, to such different vocations, living out different lives in different places. And just to give a little bit of context, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with the stories here recorded in 1 Kings, where God is working through his prophet Elijah to defeat Baal's prophets on Mount Carmel. And this story is set in the 9th century BC in a divided kingdom of Israel. There is a wicked king called Ahab in power. Ahab is described in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30 as follows. Ahab, the son of Omri, who did evil in the sight of, the, of God, more evil than all who were before him. He is not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nephat, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Syrians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Arash pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. He was a wicked king. A very wicked king. You see, this is a time where a great war is raging between the evil forces of hell in the form of Baal, a violent and wicked religion. Baal represented the god of the heavens, of rain and thunder and lightning and fertility. Baal worship had become the religion of the upper class. There was nothing benign about Baal worship. It wasn't neutral or harmless. It was an evil imposter and a threat to God's people and God's sovereignty. Its wickedness sometimes resulted in the sacrifice of children. And it definitely resulted in the persecution of God's prophets and drew God's people away from obedience in God. And just for a few minutes this morning, we're going to jump into this story from history and see if we can learn some lessons about how the characters in this story, in a time of persecution, worshipped God. And first of all, and let's start with a brief, and it's a quick look at Elijah. And just for a moment, I'd like to think of Elijah as the general, God's man on the ground, the general. Back in chapter 17 and verse 1, Elijah, drawing condemnation on this wicked king Ahab and the wickedness of the Israelites, pronounced, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the land for the next few years except at my command. And then Elijah disappeared. Ahab, this wicked king, searched high and low, up and down the country, even in the neighboring countries, to capture Elijah. He even made the leaders of these neighboring countries to swear that they didn't know where Elijah was. Ahab was angry, not impressed at all with this disappearing act of Elijah. That plus a drought and a famine to contend with. Sure, the weather report was lovely, Clear blue skies, plenty of sun, 
no rain clouds. Yet without rain clouds, they were without water. Not just for a couple of inconvenient months, when some stored food could have kept you going, but for three and a half years. And it was getting serious, really serious. Empty storehouses, dried up streams, brown fields, collapsing animals, goats at no milk. A bucket of water was more important than gold. Yes, Ahab was angry and upset. He was the king. He was meant to have power. Yet Ahab was helpless to end a drought. You see, no matter how many prayers that were offered up to Baal, no matter how many sacrifices, some of these really unpleasant sacrifices, the heavens were shut and the rain would not come. And to make matters worse, the person who Ahab believed was responsible had disappeared like a gust of wind. Nobody could find him. He hadn't been seen since that day when he spoke that one-sentence message from God. And now here at the beginning of chapter 18, and if you turn with me again to this first verse, the word of the Lord, it said, appeared to Elijah again. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Well, I wonder if it was relief or apprehension for Elijah. Elijah, I think we read, was a man of action in these chapters. And I guess Elijah, without a second thought, just got up and set off to confront this king and his even more wicked wife. I'm guessing Elijah was watching and waiting at this tsunami of wickedness that was bursting across the land. Elijah had probably spent many hours praying to God. So when the call came, Elijah was ready to go, wasn't he? Patience and prayer. Sometimes that can be difficult, can't it? Patience and prayer. Surely Elijah, with his fiery nature, found it difficult to wait. Yet even when he was sent out into obscurity by the Lord, he instantly and uncomplainingly obeyed. Elijah waited till God's time had ripened, until the battle plans were laid out on the table, until the fullness of God's purposes could be revealed. And then, when the instruction came, God's man on the ground was ready. Elijah set out to present himself to Ahab. And as he journeyed from Zarephath to Samaria, Elijah met this other important servant, of Yahweh in this passage. One of God's many undercover agents. And here's where we meet the second example of God's servant. And we're going to spend a little bit more time looking here at Obadiah. Here Elijah meets Obadiah, God's man behind enemy lines. I'm not sure if Elijah knew he was about to meet Obadiah. He doesn't seem particularly surprised, unlike Obadiah, who's pretty much taken aback. Well, nothing is given about Obadiah's past in these uh, chapters in 1 Kings. And extraordinary little is talked about as Obadiah in the future. He's not the prophet that the book Obadiah is written by. 
he appears into this biblical history here in these few verses in 1 Kings 18, and then Obadiah disappears into history. Yet I think Obadiah certainly makes an impression. So let's have a look. Here's what we do know about Obadiah. Firstly, let's have a look. He was a devout believer of the Lord. We read that in verse 3. Secondly, he feared the Lord from his youth. We read that in verse 12. Thirdly, he hid a hundred prophets of the Lord in a cave to keep Jezebel from killing them. We read that in verse 4. Fourthly, he supplied bread and water to the prophets to keep them alive. Again, we read that in verse 4. In verse 5, or in number 5, we read that uh, he was cautious, hesitant when faced with a dangerous task. I'm going to say he was human because I think his response to Elijah's request was quite human. But more about that in a moment. Lastly, Obadiah was employed as the governor of Ahab's palace. You get a sense that this meeting where Elijah was uh, was, uh, where Elijah was as surprised as Obadiah. Sorry, but you get the sense that in this meeting, Elijah was as surprised to meet Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah was as surprised to meet Elijah as Obadiah's position in this temple, in this palace, is to us. What on earth is this guy, Obadiah, doing as the chief of staff in a palace of this wicked king and queen? This king's palace would have been the last place I think you would expect a believer of Yahweh to be. Jezebel, the king's wife, had made it her mission to slaughter as many of God's followers as possible. And yet here is this man, Obadiah, not just living in her back garden. He's right in the inner circle, privy to the palace's intimate dealings. He's an undercover agent, isn't he? He's God's man behind enemy lines. See, Obadiah, he must have been a man of considerable talent to have been placed in such a responsible position. He had the controlling access to the king. Ahab must have put a great deal of trust in Obadiah. And isn't it some contrast? Ahab, this wicked king who did more evil than all the kings that had come before him, and Obadiah, a godly man who feared the Lord from his youth. Well, how was Obadiah placed in charge of the palace of such a wicked king? Well, we don't know. However, I don't believe our God works by chance or by good fortune. Obadiah is identified as a believer, which is the force of the phrase fear of the Lord in verse 3. The NIV, it says a devout believer. To have the fear of the Lord is to be a devout believer. The word devout comes from the word devote. So a devout believer is a devoted believer. Well, how can we understand what a devoted believer is? Well, perhaps Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 10 and verse 12 can help, sh help shed some light on this. Those verses say, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, to devote yourself to something is to love it and serve it with all your heart and soul. Well, we can devote ourselves to many things, can't we? 
Some devote themselves to art, painting, drawing, writing, of making music. Some devote themselves to sports. Others devote themselves to science or engineering. And in some sense, of course, this is not bad. We should strive for excellence in what we do. However, above all others, we ought to devote ourselves to God. To devote yourselves to God is to do what he asks of you with all your heart, with all your soul. That includes fearing him, obeying him, loving and serving him. Obadiah's devotion to God is recorded here. He is identified as one who protects believers. More specifically, those who would be in place to proclaim God's word and build up God's people of that word in the future. He was there to protect these hundred prophets in the caves so God's word would be able to be continued. Obadiah had a big role, didn't he, in this big picture? However, strangely, some commentators seek to view Obadiah's position in Ahab's house as a weakness in his character. Some commentators see a compromised man. Sometimes they zoom out and they criticize Obadiah. Sure, they say Obadiah believed in God and he hid 100 prophets in a cave, providing them bread and water in the midst of this drought. But they see this ability to do so as a sign of extreme wealth. Only someone with extreme financial means could provide for so many people. So they ask questions like, what kind of man was Obadiah? What kind of testimony must Obadiah have? And some commentators conclude Obadiah must have, must have had a pretty low-key testimony. They point out the king didn't even know that he was a believer. After all, Ahab and Jezebel were killing God's believers. Why didn't they kill Obadiah? Well, they say Obadiah must have had a silent testimony. They say maybe Obadiah saw himself as a religious man. Yet the fact was, he was committed to his own comfort. He was sitting on the fence, serving Ahab, enjoying living in the palace, yet justifying himself through his righteous and social good deeds. Convinced he was doing God's work, the Lord's work on one hand, giving him a false sense of security that he was pleasing God. These commentators say he was motivated, motivated by his own security, keeping the king happy and keeping God happy at the same time. Yet he obviously never took a stand for anything because he would have been dead if he did so. They wonder, was Obadiah just a people pleaser, nice to the people who are killing the Jews while being nice to the Jews themselves? He was just one of those people who was simply socially acceptable. Well, I don't know about you, but I disagree totally with that. I think that's a terrible stripping of somebody's character. And I don't believe it is at all reflective of the true Obadiah and his devotion and worship to Yahweh. And these two significant statements stand out of the text for me that concern Obadiah. And we've mentioned them a number of times. In verse 3, we read, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And in verse 12, we read, Obadiah feared the Lord from his youth. And clearly, Obadiah is no longer a youth. And the fact was that Obadiah had stayed with and served Obadiah is not an indication of a rebellious spirit. On the contrary, we see in verse 1, 
uh, Elijah obeyed God by going into obscurity, but Obadiah, we see, obeyed God by staying in in Ahab's palace. Obadiah was serving God just as much as Elijah was serving God. He was living out the fear of the Lord in a uh, quietness, in a temple, while Elijah was fearing the Lord by speaking out and condemning the wicked king. This fear arises from faith that is aware of and seeks after God's love and grace. Obadiah had tremendous reverence from God from his youth, such a reverence that he dreaded to offend God and longed to please God. What we see in Obadiah is not the temporary uh, temporary profession of a youthful enthusiasm. Obadiah's conviction, his fearful worship of God, is it endured into adulthood. And as he stood before Elijah, Obadiah stood as a godly man. You see, I think the most impressive thing here is that Obadiah had retained his godliness in a time of decline, in a time of wicked kings, of whom Ahab was the most wicked. Around him swirled a flood of unbelief and idolatry that was sweeping aside all that was godly and every public remembrance of God. But yet Obadiah retained the fear of the, God, of the Lord. And as he stood before Elijah, he did so, committed to only doing what was to honour God. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. It was a depth of passion, in other words. He feared the Lord greatly. Not only had Obadiah retained his spiritual devotion and direction, but he had grown in grace over the years. So now he is a man who is on fire for God. And that all he feels, says, and does comes from that fervent flame. No, he was not a man who was compromised. He is not a man who was two-faced, one side for Ahab and one side for God. Obadiah wasn't a just-in-case-I-need-some-God-credits I'll do some good works, sort of a guy. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And yet Obadiah was human, just like us. In the midst of this chaotic land, Obadiah must have been very nervous. His ability to be useful for God was based on being anonymous, being undercover. He was undoubtedly aware of God's people disappearing or being openly murdered on Ahab and Jezebel's orders. He was undoubtedly aware that false moves or ill-placed trust would cost the lives of God's people, particularly those in hiding, particularly those he himself was hiding. I mean, can you imagine just for a moment the logistical task of looking after a hundred prophets hidden in two caves? I mean, there's no Apple Green or Aldi, no home delivery, no Just Eat. These scarce resources needed to be procured Water required to be drawn and delivered regularly or it would go stagnant and toxic. The bread had to be baked. Now I think you're aware that this is way above the abilities of just one man. He must have had help. 40 kilos of bread a day and 150 plus litres of water. It had to work with people trusting each other. Obadiah feared the Lord more than he feared Jezebel. What he was doing could cost him his own life. But he lived to please God and to do his will. 
Jezebel may have wanted to get rid of Israel's worship of God. She tried to kill the servants of God. Jezebel wanted to plunge Israel into utter darkness. But God would not let this happen. In his mercy and by his power, it was his will to save the prophets in order to keep the light on, to lead the people back to himself. God raised up someone like Obadiah who had access to resources, had the power and influence to protect and to provide for his people, even though Israel may not have deserved it. So then it's no small wonder that when Obadiah met Elijah on the road, he was cautious, very cautious. I don't think Obadiah would have been traveling alone. I'm sure uh, servants and court officials and indeed probably some soldiers would have accompanied him. He was a very important figure. And now standing right in front of him is Elijah, the very person Ahab, his boss, Ahab the king is looking for. But look at Obadiah's reaction. Granted, it's a little hesitant at the beginning. I'm sure he's making several calculations. One bad move and his life and probably the lives of many others could forget any medium to long-term planning. Yet he bows down and acknowledges Elijah, greeting him as his Lord Elijah. I think that precisely shows where Obadiah's allegiance is directed. Elijah orders Obadiah to take a message to Ahab. The message Elijah says, tell Ahab I'm here. Obadiah is taken aback, isn't he? He has to play catch up pretty quickly because racing through Obadiah's minds are fears the wrong sort of fears. While his fear of God is healthy, producing a richness in action, aiding worship and service to Yahweh. However, this fear of man, it is the type of fear that is the opposite. It produces inaction, paralysis. That fear produces self-service. And it's understandable, isn't it? Obadiah is human. He's not an elite trained warrior. He's just a relatively ordinary man, okay, apart from his high office, but he's an ordinary man who has been called upon by God to do some extraordinary things. And right there on this road, he feels the pressure. Would any of us have been any different? Could any of us throw the first stone here? If we were to read on in chapter 19, we hear of uh, Elijah being scared of Jezebel also. You see, Obadiah here straight away sees the risks. Would Ahab accuse him of knowing where Elijah was all this time? Surely Ahab would expect Obadiah to arrest Elijah and bring him back to the palace, certainly if there were soldiers present or nearby. And of course, what if Elijah disappeared again? That would indeed be a death sentence for Obadiah, even if he survived returning home and giving Ahab the message. So uh, Obadiah asks in verse nine, what have I done wrong? You see, it's not surprising Obadiah was scared. He tried to understand the position he was in. You know, it's hard to serve two masters, isn't it? Particularly when one of them has a history of such bloodthirsty violence and hatred towards Yahweh's followers. See, it highlights the challenge, isn't it? Posed by death. Obadiah, speak up and die. It's a serious challenge. You see, Obadiah tried to understand. He tried 
he had tried to do the right things. In fact, hadn't he done the right things, responding to what God had called him to do? He was in the right position to do what God wanted him to do. Obadiah feared God and was a promoter and protector of life. Regardless of, of his safety, Obadiah obeyed God, working to preserve God's prophets, prophets, successfully finding food and water for them. Ahab was not only, had not only showed disdain for his subjects, concerned only for power and self-promotion. Ahab was seeking water for his horses and for his mules. These horses and mules were tools of an army, an army to destroy life. Ahab had all his priorities mixed up. He was more concerned about his animals than he was about the people. He wanted to try and save his war animals, but allowed the prophets to be killed at his wife's request. These prophets would know the way to end the drought. See, it was the prophets, they would be able to see the way back to God. But Ahab, he didn't fear God. He allowed the servants of the Lord, men whom God worked through, to be killed. You see, without the fear of God, he had no wisdom or understanding of what was truly important. Ahab and Jezebel were worshippers of Baal and agents of death. Obadiah, though, was a servant of God and a protector of life. Perhaps briefly, Obadiah is concerned all his efforts were in vain. The fear of certain death was a shock and a trial for Obadiah. Up to this point, he had trusted God, the Lord, and he had risked his life before. But these risks were not as dangerous as Elijah's request. Obadiah feels that the risk of death here is higher. Obadiah feels that he's actually going to die for this. To some extent, he had been able to hide from Jezebel. But in this situation, how could he hide from Ahab? Obadiah did take significant risks, but this risk was even out of his comfort zone. Obadiah felt he had already done great and hazardous work for the Lord. And so he was shocked to hear the Lord requiring him to go through something even harder, something that was going to mean certain death. And so that was his first reaction. What have I done wrong? You see, there was fear of man mixed up with his fear of God at this moment. But here we read the word greatly that tells, of his, uh, tells us of the predominant force in his life. When the fear of man did mix with his fear of the Lord, God stepped in and Obadiah soon overcame that fear. So it did not overcome him from fulfilling his duty towards God. What was it that overcame that fear? Well, it was listening to the word of God given in an instant through the Lord's prophet. The NIV says, has the Lord Almighty lives in verse 15. Has the Lord of hosts, uh, the ESV says, has the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. This is how Elijah provided the assurance he used the words, as the Lord of hosts lives. Early Obadiah had said, the Lord your God. But here Elijah responds, the Lord of hosts, indicating he's not just my God, but he's the Lord of many. The Lord of the whole world is with you, Obadiah. The whole force of God is with you. 
By this he is calling Obadiah to strengthen his faith and continue in obedience. As Obadiah ponders this reality and assurance, he gives the promise and assurance of Elijah its proper place over his weaker emotions. So Obadiah could continue to fear the Lord, to fulfill the vocation, the calling of worship and service to Yahweh. I think an important question we face today in our Christian lives is whether we are consciously seeking and complying with God's personalized will for our lives, for our individual lives. I think our concern must be whether we are living in the fear of the Lord. Sure, we can look at this passage here and say, well, we should be an Obadiah, we should be an Elijah. But I don't believe God wants us to try to be something or someone we're not or can never be. He has called each of us here because each of us are unique. Each of us are special. Each of us are gifted. Yes, even gifted. He has called us because we are so special that he sent his son, King Jesus, to rescue us. King Jesus left a palace far different than Ahab's palace. Jesus left a palace that was filled with beauty, a palace filled of love. King Jesus left that palace not looking for water. He came as living water, water that would quench our thirst and give us life. However, to do that, he had to become human. He had to become a man. King Jesus humbled himself to be a little child in a manger so he could be salvation to you and he could be salvation to me. And the first question is, as we try to rub some application in here and wrap up this morning's talk, is which side are you on? Are you on the side of God, standing with these men of old? Or are you standing with Ahab and Jezebel, with the false prophets and the idols of this world? If we were to read on, and the temptation is, is, is great in some of these stories, we would see how it ends for the prophets of Baal. They were defeated, and what's more, and what's more is that this cosmic war between the forces of hell and the forces of heaven have played out. It's over. Because 2,000 years ago, that special child was born and placed into a manger. It was that special child that had left that wonderful palace that came down into this manger. It was because he grew up perfect, sinless, innocent. And he did that, something that we could not do because it was only him who could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. But to do that, he had to become a willing guilt offering. Those innocent hands first had to be nailed to a cross. And in place of where we should have died, he did. He paid that punishment for you. He paid it for me. That's how special you are. You see, the battle is over. Jesus is one. And not just because he died. It is because death could not overcome him. And he rose from that grave. And you know what I think is amazing? God did not leave us guessing who would win. When Jesus rose victorious over death, he stood before us. Proof of the victory being won. He stood before the disciples. And they were able to place their hands on his hands. Proof the victory was won.
But do you know one day these tables, this table will be turned and we are going to have to stand before Jesus. Which side are you going to stand on? Well, as for me, I'm standing on the side of victory. I'm going to stand on the side that offers real life. I'm standing for King Jesus. Will you? Secondly and lastly, how do I fearfully devote myself to King Jesus? Well, I think it's quite similar to what Obadiah was asked to do. Sometimes Elijah is, being, is compared as a shadow of Jesus, an Old Testament picture of the Messiah that is to come. Elijah gave Obadiah a dangerous and challenging task. The task was go tell Ahab, Elijah is coming. Well, is our role much different? As God's people, we are tasked to go out into a world and make disciples of all nations. Elijah commanded Obadiah to go to Ahab and tell him Elijah is coming. Jesus left instructions to us to go and tell the people of this world that he is coming again and they need to get ready. Our role is not much difference. We are to announce to the nations the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus said he will come again. Yes, it's scary. Yes, maybe it may be dangerous. And yes, there may be risks. But we are all agents behind enemy lines. He has given each one of us a role to play. And no two roles are the same. We are all different because God has equipped us with the ability to perform that role, the individual role that he has placed on our lives. And there's no point looking at the person beside you and going, well, if only I had their gift. There's no good looking around and saying, well, if only I could do this. If only I could do that. See, God has given you the gift you need. We're kitted out. We just have to learn to use those gifts. We can learn from Elijah and Obadiah that their gifts were affected because they cultivated a relationship with God. They feared the Lord. Well, how can I fear? How can we fear the Lord? Well, fearing the Lord is a command. But as you know, our sins prevent us from keeping God's commands. But as I pointed out a couple of minutes ago, there is one who has kept all of God's commands and loved and was devoted to God perfectly, King Jesus. We fear the Lord through faith in King Jesus. Just as Obadiah's fear of the Lord was was expressed through the devoted belief and worship of the Lord, our fear of God is also expressed through devoted uh, faith and worship in Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who brings our fear of God to its proper focus. God is a burning sun that will scorch all that is unholy. But Christ is our shield that the wrath of God passes over. Jesus Christ is the one who enables us to come close to God and see the fullness of God's glory. Because in Christ, we not only see his immense power, but we also see his immense humility, his gentleness, his love, his patience towards each of us, each of us individually. So our fear is not only of his extraordinarily, extraordinary might, but it's also a fear in reverence, in awe, in wonder, in praise, in worship. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 28, do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
And if you read this verse by itself, it might make you feel afraid of God. But if you understand this in its context, these are words Jesus said himself. You will see that this is an encouragement he is giving to his disciples before sending them out to preach the kingdom of God. He says, do not be afraid of those who will kill you. Be be afraid instead of God who can throw both soul and body into hell. If we have that fear, we will look at the people around us and we will fear for them, for their body, for their soul. And that's why we are asked to go so earnestly to rescue the people from the evil clasps of Satan. You see, here's the good news. By faith in Christ, God will not throw you into hell, but he will prepare a place for you in heaven. And that is why we fear God. That is why we are devoted to him. That is why we serve him in faith, in love and obedience and worship him. We give thanks to him and glorify him above all other things. You know, devotion starts with prayer and meditation on God's world. Begin there. Read the Bible. Pray for understanding. Get some help from the pastors or elders in the church. Join the Bible study, the prayer meeting. Maybe pick up a good book to read. Just the other day, myself and Dave were looking at a book by Sinclair Ferguson, Maturity. An amazing book to read. One that will give you blessing. Why not call somebody up? Well, if you're going to call me, make it quick. I've only two weeks. But I'm sure, hopefully, someday, when we're allowed out for coffee again, you may be able to call somebody and sit and chat and talk about the true meaning of fearing God. And maybe talk about the true meaning of what your true vocation is. Well, what is my vocation? What do I want to do when I grow up? Well, I want to be someone who is known to fear the Lord by putting God in the rightful place in my life, by trusting and obeying him, whatever the outcome. What about you? What do you want to be when you grow up? Let's just pray together as we finish our service this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come into this church this morning and that we can worship you. We can worship you in truth. We can worship you because you came down as a little baby into this world and joined us in the suffering and the torment and the difficulty of life. We can trust you because you are beside us, you are with us, and you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell inside us as our counselor. Father, we thank you so much for what Jesus has done for us. And Father, as we sit here this morning, help us to look into our own hearts, to look in and ask, do we fear the Lord? Are we fearing the Lord correctly? Do we put the Lord in his rightful place in our lives? And Father, help us to look at you And to be willing to sacrifice, willing to obey, willing to go, willing to stay, whatever that may be, to be agents for your kingdom on earth. 
so that we can point to others to find the true God of this world and to have a hope for the future that's to come. The hope of a future of living with you in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.